single mom of two kids uh, who are in their teens, and she, I hear work on her deck. I go over there. She is tearing her deck up by herself. She has removed all the decking and half of the joists, and she's out there with a hammer and a sledgehammer, and she's tearing this deck apart. And so I'm talking to her, and I say, uh, you know, would you like some help? Those words blurted out of my mouth, and I... Um, <laughs> She said, I'm not going to turn down any help. So at this point, I knew that uh, I, I needed help. So I sent out a message to you guys. If you're, if you're on our, our email list here at the church, guys, you got an email asking for help yesterday. I had, had five guys show up yesterday morning uh, to help me uh, rebuild her deck. And we, we took down a tree and, uh, with a chainsaw that was on her fence. We mowed and weed whipped her yard. And we, we tore the, the rest of the decking up. And the guys found out that the half she'd hoped to save was also rotten. And I said, well, let me talk to her. And the guys said, no, no, we're going to take care of it. And I said, what, what do you mean? They said, no, we're going to take care of it. So I went around and, and told her that the rest of her deck was rot, rotten. And she looks at me and she says, that's going to cost a lot of money. And she's a single mom just making it. And I said, no, they're going to take care of it. And she, she starts weeping. And um, she said, well, I, I, get me their PayPal just so that I can pay them back. I said, no, they're not going to give it to me. I said, they're not going to let you pay for this. And so I had a chance um, to stand out in the driveway with her and tell her that she and her family are greatly loved by God. And these guys are there to show her that in a very practical way. And man, it, to it tore her up, turned her world upside down. She called her parents and her mom's like, what, how could they do that? Why are they doing this? Her mom couldn't believe it. And so, you know, this, this love of neighbor thing is pretty powerful, okay? It's pretty powerful medicine. And it's the will of God for you and for me. This is the will of God for us. Listen to um, what Paul says in Galatians 5. He says, the whole law, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And those guys, uh, those five guys, uh, man, they fulfilled the law yesterday. And they didn't know her, right? They never met her. They may never see her again. I hope they will. I hope they'll see her here one day. Um, but those guys faced a choice, right? Um, they could do what they wanted to do on a Saturday morning, or they could do what they thought God wanted them to do. And so um, these guys opted for the latter. And now... now not all our, let's be clear, not all our desires are opposed to what God wants to do, obviously. Um, but sometimes they are, and if we're honest, I know if I'm honest, it seems like a lot of times they are. Um, sometimes it's just whether I want to be selfish or whether I want to serve. Um, sometimes it's a whole lot darker than that. It's whether I want to be pure or I want to lust. It's whether I want to be sober or I want to get drunk. It's do I want to love or hate, forgive or be bitter, be generous or be greedy. You know, it's like a fork in the road, right? Not, maybe that's not the best way to think about it. Think about it like this. This is a better way to think about it. It's like a fork in the road, right? 
And so those five guys, they could have done anything yesterday morning. Um, it kind of presses this question on us, right? Um, will you follow, when you stand at that fork, will you follow the will of God or will you follow your own desires? Really? And I wonder, matter of fact, I bet you are facing a fork just like this, a decision like this. If you're not facing it today, you're going to face it this week. If you're a parent, you might face it before you get out of this building. Am I going to do, am I going to treat this person the way God wants me to treat them or am I going to treat them the way I want to treat them? Am I going to do what I want or am I going to do what I believe God wants me to do? And um, we, we call that a temptation, right? And you are going to face it. I guarantee you, you'll face it this week. You're going to stand at that fork and you're going to have to choose. Um, and it's a really important decision. And it's a complicated decision because we're really good at following our own desires. It's what we do best. We do what we want. Um, and it just seems like the car wants to pull in that direction. You know, it wants to go down that path, the path of our desires. Plus, honestly, if we're, if we're being honest, we're not always sure we want to do God's will, especially if it's hard, especially if it might ask us to suffer. And so we wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth it to go down that path? And it's good for us to remember how the Bible speaks about the will of God for our lives. Okay, listen. Listen to how the, old, the language of the Old Testament talks about what God has for his people. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not evil. To give you a future and a hope. That's, that's what God has for his people. Paul talks about it in the New Testament beautifully. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is good and it's acceptable to him. It's pleasing to him and to you. And it's perfect. God's will is good because he is good. You know, we say God is our good, good father. And so it just makes sense that he has a good, good will for us. Um, so it's worth it, right? Taking the path to follow the will of God rather than our own desires, it's worth it. Okay? It's worth it. And Peter, in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, the book we're studying together, um, he wants to help us with this choice, right? He wants to help us take the path of the will of God. And let me just say for a minute, Peter intends to mess with you, okay? Don't blame me, okay? It's Peter. And I'm sure if Peter were here, he'd say, don't blame me, it's God, okay? This is, uh, these are hard um, exhortations. Peter intends to mess with your life, okay? Um, and the temptation is to think, wow, I've got to really try harder. I've got to work harder at this. Yes, you probably do. Okay. But trying always rests in the Christian life on trusting. Okay. 
And so the big thing here is do you trust God to be good to you enough that you'll walk into a path that could involve suffering, right? It's about trust before it's about trying. Um, so so you, you've, you've been warned, all right? First Peter, we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter 4 together. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Right? There's the fork. Did you hear it in chapter, verse 2 there? No longer living for human passions, but for the will of God. In these first six verses, this is what Peter wants to help us with. And those human passions that there are rendered more provocatively in some other translations of the Bible. The New International Version calls them evil human desires, right? Not living for the rest of the time for evil human desires. The New American Standard says the lusts of men. So you pick up the idea that the desires that Peter has in mind are our darker desires, those that clearly fork off in another direction from the goodwill of God. And he's going to make that clear in just a couple verses as he gives some very specific examples. Right? And there are three perspectives that Peter urges on us to help us choose the path of the will of God. Let me give you some bumper stickers for them and we'll see if we can connect them to First Peter. They go like this. Um, pre-decide is the first one. Pre-decide. And the second one is just say enough already. And the third one is take the long view. Okay. Let me see if I can explain those and draw them out of what, what Peter's saying to us here. That first verse, Peter is telling us, pre-decide. Okay. Pre-decide. Um, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter says that since Christ suffered to do God's will, we need to arm ourselves with the same willingness. Okay? Jesus suffered a lot physically. If you've read his biographies in the New Testament, he was flogged, he was beaten, he had that crown of thorns pressed into his brow. But what Peter has in mind here is the apex of Jesus' suffering, of course, is when he was put on the cross. He says in the passage that Ben Merkel led us in last week that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And that suffering that's in view there, as it is here, is the cross. Jesus bearing the cross for us. And don't, don't rush past that. Grasping that Jesus suffered on the cross as our sin bearer is essential to walking in the will of God, the good will of God for you. It is what it means to be a Christian, to trust Jesus, to have borne your sins upon the cross so that you can know a very holy God. You simply cannot walk with Jesus in the will of God without knowing Jesus as your sin bearer. It's impossible. Without that. But Peter here 
is assuming that's in place, that he's writing to Christians, and he says that Jesus was willing to suffer to do the will of God, so must we be to follow him. Peter says, arm yourself with that perspective, right? It's military language. Get ready. Arm yourself. Be prepared with the same willingness to suffer that Jesus had. Don't let it surprise you. Pre-decide. Anticipate that suffering is going to come if you follow Jesus and decide that it's worth it. Okay? It's worth it. Paul writes about this idea of pre-deciding in Ephesians 6 when he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. It's all done in dependence of God. But then he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You don't, uh, putting on the armor is a, is a preemptive thing. You don't walk into battle and then say, whoa, this is kind of scary. Could use some armor here. I wonder if there's any armor around. No, you put on armor in anticipation of a battle and then you go into it, right? To follow, um, well, here he says, Jesus suffered to follow the will of his Father. You will too. Arm yourself with a pre-decided willingness to suffer. Okay. I mean, you just need to say to yourself, I am going to suffer if I follow Christ. And I'm good with that. I'm willing. I'm terrified, but I'm willing. Peter makes this all the more clear back in chapter 2 where he says, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. To follow in the steps of Jesus is to be willing to suffer in order to do the will of God. Arm yourself, Peter says, with that willingness. Pre-decide. It's worth it. I'm willing. Okay. When I stand at the fork and one path is easy and comfortable and the other is hard and demanding, I have already decided the hard and demanding way is worth it. It is worth it. Peter says something, though, at the end of that verse that's a bit odd. He says in verse 1, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And at first reading, that sounds awesome, right? Stub your toe, get a free pass on sin. This is awesome. Little bit of suffering, you're exempt from sin. Obviously, that's not what, what Peter has in mind. But at the same time, suffering is used by God to powerful have powerful effect on us, right? The psalmist wrote about it. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, meaning after I was afflicted, now I keep your word. So suffering can be used by God to help us be free from sin. Um, he does that all the time. But what Peter seems to have in mind here is the kind of suffering that Jesus endured. Suffering for following the path of the will of God. This kind of suffering has this big impact on sin 
precisely because it reflects a choice to walk down the hard path of the will of God. That's where you encountered that suffering. It reflects that you've chosen to walk out the will of God rather down the path of evil desires and sin. If you arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Jesus, that it's worth it to walk in the will of God even if I suffer, then you'll be done with sin. Okay? Sin is down a different path. You'll be on another path. So Peter says, pre-decide. Arm yourself now with a willingness to suffer for the will of God. So when you stand at that fork, okay, this week, when you stand at that fork and there's an easy and comfortable path and the other one is hard and demanding and that's the way of God for you, you've already decided it's worth it. It's worth it to me. Now what might that look like? to pre-decide that it's worth it to suffer for the will of God. Well, it could, it could sound like this. When I get home tonight, I'm not going to lose myself in surfing the web for in, images that tantalize me. Instead, I'm going to stay off the computer and I'm going to go for a walk. That's what I'm going to do tonight. And I will suffer the loss of that titillating pleasure because it's worth it. When someone at school or work says something disparaging about Christians, I'll graciously identify myself as a Christian. I'll say, hey, hey, guys, I follow Christ. I won't hide and be silent. I'll suffer the mockery if need be because it's worth it. The next time my flirty coworker comes by my desk, I'm going to excuse myself and walk away, and I will suffer the loss of that relationship if I have to because it's worth it. I'm going to decide that now. It's worth it. When I'm really tense after a hard day and I want to have one more drink than I should to help me relax, I won't do that. I will forego that pleasure because I know it's worth it. I am predeciding to arm myself with a willingness to face sacrifice and suffering for the will of God. I am predeciding that the will of God is worth it for me to walk in the good, good will of God. Get the thought and the purpose in your head that Christ is worth suffering for. As Paul said it, I will prayerfully be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might and arm myself, as Peter says, with the willingness of Christ to suffer if need be. To walk in the will of God is worth it. Okay, It's worth it. So, what is the fork that you're going to stand at this week? What's the decision that you're going to face where one road is easy and one road which holds the will of God for you might be quite a bit harder. What's your, what's your choice? By the grace of God and with much prayer, Peter says, pre-decide. Arm yourselves with a willingness to suffer for the will of God. Do it now. Pre-decide now. When I stand there, I'm going to go that way. Just like Jesus, for Hebrews says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So. The first thing he says to us has to do with a willingness to suffer and pre-deciding. Pre the second thing, the second little bumper sticker I mentioned 
is just say enough already. Okay, enough. Look at the next verse. For the time that is past suffices, is enough for doing what the Gentiles do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I like the way John Piper summarizes this. He says, arm yourself with this thought. Any amount of past sinning is enough. Okay? If you sinned a little before you were converted, that's enough. If you sinned a lot for many years before your conversion, that's enough. You can never sin so little that you could say, I need some more time to sin. But how many people say, I know I need to get this right with God and make a break with this sin, but just a little more time, a little more time with sin. Peter says, arm yourself with the thought, the time you spent sinning is enough. Make the break, choose the will of God, and suffer for it if you must. So, so you cannot think, I'll just look one more time and this is it. I'm never going to do this again. I'll just go visit her one more time, and then I'm done. I'll just have one more drink. Tomorrow is a new start. No, no, no. This is not like blowing your diet, people. Okay? This is choosing the path of sin that neuters the power of your life and makes you live and look just like everybody else. So... Um, pastor John Ortberg tells about a conversation he had with another pastor at one point in time in his church. He said, a pastor once asked me, isn't your church worldly? And Ortberg says, well, what do you mean by worldly? And he says, well, people in the world listen to contemporary music, and you use contemporary music in your church. People in the world use drama, you use drama in your church. Everybody knows that Christians should be different from non-Christians by being more loving and joyful and all that stuff. But everybody knows we're not. So shouldn't we do something to make ourselves different? And Ortberg says he felt like saying, in other words, if we can't be holy, then shouldn't we at least be weird? Okay. And Peter says, no, we should be holy. We should really be holy. We should live, truly live different. We should take the fork that leads to the will of God, and we should truly be more loving and joyful and all that stuff. Being weird isn't enough. Some of you have settled for being weird. Okay? Your friends just think you're weird. Because you go to church and you read your Bible. But you live just like them. Except for these oddities stuck onto your life. Not enough. Okay? Jesus calls us to a rich and holy life. A truly different life. More loving, more joyful, more holy, and all that stuff. To do that, Peter says, we have to say, enough already, okay? No mas, right? Enough already. I'm not going to go down that path again. The path that you've been duped into going down how many times? You say, no, I'm not going to give it one more time and then stop. I'm going to stop. Now, and you, you need to know, this is a prayerful declaration again. You'll need God's strengths, strength and mercy to act upon it, which is why your spiritual practices of drawing near to God in prayer and his word and delighting in him so that you know how much he loves you 
and you love him back matter. They are determinative in whether or not you'll be able to do this. The vitality of your communion with God will help you make the choice at that fork of the road where you see that Jesus is worth it. Now Peter has an interesting emphasis on his little list of things that Christians used to do that they aren't supposed to do anymore. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And he has kind of a focus on um, sex and drink. Okay. Evidently, in the churches he was writing to, these were temptations that loomed large in their culture. And that's a lot like ours. Um, and it's interesting, you know, uh, used to be that for Christians, mixed bathing was considered perilous to your soul. And of course, you're thinking, of course, that'd be weird. Mixed bathing, what the heck is that? Well, that's what they meant, swimming in a pond with people of the opposite sex. Swimming in a pool with people of the opposite sex. That was perilous to your very soul, and Christians did not do it. Okay? This was several years ago. Um, you know, the other thing that used to be, um, I mean, if you did that now, you would be like the world's biggest prude, right? Who, what? What? Are you kidding me? You won't get in a pool because there are people the opposite side? That's insane. Okay. But back in the day, that was something that mattered to them. Um, it used to be that for a Christian to even take a drink of alcohol, oh, your soul was endangered, periled. Still is if you're a seminary student, by the way. Um, just, just to be clear. But for the rest of us, um, so I mean the whole temperance movement, uh, you know, the prohibition, all that came out of a concern that this was dangerous, right? But now people worry, if you tell them you're a teetotaler, they kind of worry about you. You're like, you need to loosen up, man, you know? You, know, you shouldn't really be that legalistic. And so... The concerns have changed. We've discovered that we have great freedom in Christ in areas like this. But, you know, as a pastor, I also find myself counseling people who fail to have safe relational boundaries with the opposite sex, and they become emotionally, if not physically, enmeshed with a co-worker or such thing. Um, this happens often. I increasingly deal with believers who struggle with God-honoring limits to their drinking, and as a result, they deal with the embarrassment and the regret that comes with being a little tipsy out in public or maybe even losing a job over such a thing or a DUI or such. Um, see, I'm not saying that you can't go to the pool or you can't have a glass of wine with your meal, but I am saying that Peter seems to single these out as two areas that are dangerous. We need to be on our guard, even as his churches needed to be on their guard. We need to prayerfully pre-decide where we won't go. Don't decide in the midst of it. Decide beforehand. Enough already, right? I'm not going to go down that path again. Got duped before, not going to go there. By the grace of God. And curiosity, people, is lethal here. Especially in the area of, of sexuality and sexual sin. You know, you wonder. I wonder if he's online. I think I'll go check. I wonder if there's a picture of that act actress on the web. I wonder what she looks like. That musician, that celebrity. Um, 
I'll just take a little peek. And that leads to another peek, which leads to a forbidden peek. And so we say, enough already. I've been duped once. I've been down that road. No mas. Okay? Not going to happen. We pre-decide by the grace of God. I will not go there even one more time. Enough, Peter says. What you did before, you've sinned enough. Okay? You've sinned enough. No more. Let's, by the grace of God, let's not go there. Let's, let's pre-decide not to go there okay? again. Now, the last thing that Peter urges to help us grasp how to keep God's goodwill and not fall into our own dark desires again is that when we're pressed, he urges us to take the long view, right? Take the long view. In verse 4, he says, with respect to this, that is, with your refusal to join in those old behaviors, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So when you take the fork that is the will of God and you don't join your old friends or coworkers or classmates in the way maybe you used to live or the way they now live, they're going to be shocked, and they're going to malign you. They'll speak ill of you. They may heap abuse on you. They may mock you. It's interesting. The language here is the language of blasphemy. He says they're going to blaspheme you. In Peter's day, Christians were being maligned for their good conduct. Does that sound familiar? To me, it sounds like a college campus today where where followers of Jesus are mocked for their sobriety and their unwillingness to participate in these kind of things or for their virginity and their unwillingness to participate in rampant um, sexuality, sexual activity on campus. Um, Peter says... When this happens, and it's very likely that it will, take the long view, okay? Their word isn't the last word. God will have the last word. This is what he says in the next verse, in verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, Peter says they will be judged by God for their conduct. Peter is urging them and us not to give in to that pressure and slide back into our old worldly ways because judgment comes because of those kind of things. One of the most sobering New Testament portraits of judgment is in 2 Thessalonians. And it reads like this. um, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, his people, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is a sobering thing, Peter says. Judgment is coming on those who choose the fork of their own desires. It would be folly to go that route even though you are mocked and maligned um, for your faith, because you will be joining in the activities that God is going to judge. He is ready to judge those things. Take the long view and be mindful. that You don't want to be on that path when God is ready to judge. And then he closes with our passage with this word of encouragement. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So again, Peter's meaning is a little cloudy here. By the gospel being preached to the dead, it's best to understand him meaning those, it was preached to those who are now dead. Um, not that the gospel's preached again to folks after they die. That would be inconsistent with everything that the New Testament teaches about that. Hebrews says it plainly. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, not a second chance. Right? Scripture does not teach a second chance after death. So Peter is saying here that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead so that even though they're dead like all men, by the work of the Spirit of God, they will rise one day. Peter's urging us, take the long view here and see the hope of resurrection that makes it worth it. The resurrection makes it worth it. We don't just die like everyone else. We don't just die and face judgment like others. Because of the hope of the resurrection, it's worth it to walk the hard way of the will of God in in this life. Professor Tom Schreiner says that unbelievers viewed the death of believers as proof that there's no advantage in becoming a believer. For all without exception die. Peter indicated, however, that unbelievers do not understand the whole picture. They don't see the long view. Even though from a human perspective, believers seem to gain no benefits from their faith since they die, from God's perspective, which is normative, they live, they are resurrected by the Spirit. So, Peter says, take the long view when you're being pressured to go back into your old ways or the ways of those around you. When you suffer for choosing the will of God, when you are mocked or made fun of, when you're dismissed or ridiculed, when you're falsely accused, remember God will have a last word. And that's worth it. Along this lines, there's a portion of a prayer that I pray often, um, almost daily. It's called the Litany of Humility. And appropriately, it's anonymous. No one knows who wrote it, right? Because it's about humility. But this is a portion from that prayer. And it helps me stand in the will of God when I'm pressured or maligned to do otherwise. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being falsely accused, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. So, this week, you're likely going to find yourself at a crossroads. And you are going to be faced with a choice between following what you want and your desires, some of them dark, and what God wants and his good desires for you, some of them hard. Peter says, predecide now. Predecide now that the hard way is worth it. The suffering is worth it. Just say enough already. You've been down that one path enough. You're not going to go there even one more time. And remember the long view that God will judge those 
who walk outside of his will. Um, and that the hope of the resurrection waits for us. And of course, all of this comes to us, not because we're good enough or we try hard enough, but it's available to us at the fork in the road because Jesus did suffer for us and die. Listen again to Peter earlier. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So if you would, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to close with a song of worship of Jesus who suffered.